As most of you know, one of the things that I struggle with is my eyesight. I have extremely poor eyesight. Um, I, I, for the longest time, I had to wear both contacts and glasses. Right now, I have, to, I, I have just a hard contact lens. I'm not wearing glasses, but uh, my eyesight's really quite bad. Um, even now with the contacts in, it's not great. And eventually, uh, unless the Lord intervenes, I will go blind, most likely. Um, that's a long time from now, hopefully, Lord willing. But uh, that is something I'm going to be struggling with. But I didn't realize it for the longest time. My eyesight, looking back, according to my baseball coach, started going out in high school. So um, he really, he, 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 when, I, when he saw me with glasses when I was in college, he's like, okay, that explains a lot. Because I could not figure out why you could not see those pitches. But anyway, so, um, but I didn't realize it. I, I, I didn't realize it at all. And I came to realize it when I was in college and I was in an accounting class and I was sitting in the back seat and the instructor was writing on the board and I was just getting so frustrated because as I was looking at the board, it would just seem so blurry and so I, I couldn't make anything out that he was writing. And so I turned to the people next to me and they were just writing up a storm and I looked at them and I said, can you read that? And they said, yeah, it's easy. And for the first time, I realized my eyesight was terrible. I was blind and I didn't even know it. Now, what's interesting is, is and I'll explain this a little bit later, is that it'd actually be several years before I was able to get my, my vision somewhat corrected. And I remember, though, what had happened all those years. And I, I again... I knew that I was struggling with eyesight, but I didn't realize how bad it was. Other people could see it because I'd be writing papers in seminary and I would be this close to the screen. It just seemed natural to me. That's how I could see. But other people would look at that as like, that, that's weird. That's, what's wrong with your vision? Oh, no, it's, it's fine. Nothing too bad with it. But once I finally was able to get contacts in, and I remember the day and I was in seminary, when it took place, and, um, and I got the contacts, and I was driving up to the coffee shop at the, at the DTS bookstore to meet with some friends, and I just remember the first thing that I noticed as I got my contacts in, and I was able to, to see, not perfectly, but certainly a lot better for the first time, I was amazed just looking at the grass. I've been on that campus for, I think, at least three or four years, but I was just looking at the grass, and I could see, oh, Wow. This is like individual blades of grass. You can, people are actually supposed to be able to see that. I didn't realize that. That's how, that's how oblivious I was to my own blindness. I remember going into the coffee shop and the colors, which I've been in that, trust me, I was in that coffee shop a lot. But I looked around and I was like, wow, these colors are so bright. I was amazed. I was blown away. And it was in those moments after now first being able to see I came to realize how blind I was. How truly dull my eyesight had become. The truth is, that was in many ways a metaphor for where I was in high school. My eyesight was losing itself and I didn't realize it, but so was my spiritual eyesight as well. God became less and less important to me and the other things of this world like making money, being popular, having friends. 
making up for the fact that I couldn't hit a curveball, all became heavier and heavier to me. And became more and more dull to the things of God. And it's the same way as when I got my eyesight into me, when God in his grace and his mercy confronted me, putting up a mirror before my heart and exposed me for the sinful sinner that I was, I was blown away. I had no idea what a bad, pitiful state I was in. I thought I was fine. That's one of the big dangers with spiritual blindness. A lot of times we're blind and we don't even realize it. A lot of times we move through and we can go through the motions. We can come to church each and every week thinking that we see, but completely unaware of the the true nature of our hearts, the true dullness of our sight. We, We list through and we think, oh, well, yeah, I'm fine. This is just the way everybody else is. And we don't understand that there is a world of color and beauty and wonder of God's love and his grace that is there dancing before us in the scenery and we don't even realize it because of the dull states of our eyesight of our hearts. In many ways, confronting that spiritual blindness as we've discussed is a big reason why we have the book of 1 Samuel. The writer of 1 Samuel is, of course, writing. He's taking all the the documents that are written of the prophetic writings of Samuel and others during these times and, and putting them together, not just to tell the history of Israel, but to confront Israel through its own history and the way God has interacted with them in history to show them their own need, to confront their own blindness, to show them their need and God's faithfulness as they are to be exported into Babylon, but yet showing where God is faithful, showing them where they've messed up. And they've always been a people that have messed up, a people that has needed grace, but showing that God was always there in the midst of it, revealing his grace. And so we we find that that is especially brought home in today's passage. And so we're going to start in chapter 3. We'll look at verse 1, and it says, says this, Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. Now, keep in mind, as we've discussed in the past, this was quite a, quite a dark time in Israel's history. In the original Hebrew Bible, the, the, book of first, the book of Samuel, I should say, they weren't split up in the original. It was just Samuel. It wasn't First and Second Samuel. But they were, uh, it immediately followed the book of Judges. And we see the climate of, of Israel in the book of Judges, and it was dark. And God would raise up leaders for times of revival and reform, but they would just go back into their idolatry. They'd go back into their sinful ways. And we've already seen that uh, while there certainly were people who were righteous and holy and, and seeking after the Lord, you see that in the book of Ruth, and you even saw that with Hannah earlier on. But yet, there's still a spiritual darkness that is taking place. And we see it in the priestly family. We, saw, we see it in Eli and in his sons. 
And while they uh, are certainly have a lot of problems that were real to them, they were in many ways a microchasm of what was going on in the larger picture in the hearts of Israel. And we're going to see that made quite explicitly here today. And so what we saw is in the spiritual leadership, and they, uh, this was before the, the ark was brought to Jerusalem, the, the tabernacle was, had kind of been morphed into a semi-permanent building in Shiloh. And so the people, the central place of worship at this time was at Shiloh. And there Eli was ministering, but his sons, their sons were doing great wicked evil. And we saw that that was in contrast with Samuel, right? And Samuel, as we saw last week, is is in many ways kind of a foreshadowing of Christ. Imperfect foreshadowing, as we'll see, but a foreshadowing of Christ is to come. But Eli, the high priest, has had many issues, and we saw this last week. Eli, we've already seen, is struggling with spiritual blindness. He confuses Hannah for a drunken woman. But even more fearful is what's going on with his sons. They're blaspheming the worship of the Lord. They're, they're the sacrifices that people would bring for worship. They would take what they wanted from it. And if they didn't get what they wanted, they would use violence to get it anyways. And then they were even sleeping with women who had come to serve at the temple. It says that the visions and the words from the Lord was rare. But as we saw last week, rare doesn't mean unheard of. Because we saw there was a prophet, an unnamed prophet, who confronted Eli in his sin. Confronted him for not making, remember what we saw last week, is he wasn't making God heavy. And the word, the Hebrew word there is kavod. It's also translated glory in some places. He wasn't making God that which was the heaviest. And so now we pick up and we find that Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word was rare at this time. Now, as we move on to verse 2, it says this, And at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had already had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. And so what we see here, and while this is absolutely literally true, It was not just true on him physically that his eyesight was growing dim and he was having a hard time fulfilling his duties as a priest. It was actually emblematic of what was going on in his heart. Remember the confusion. He he confused Hannah's for a drunken woman, literally a daughter of Belai, whereas his sons were actual sons of Belai. So you saw the contrast that is there. He lacked spiritual discernment. And so his eyes would grow dim so that he could not see. And he was lying down in his own place. Now, sometimes commentators have, have made, some of them have made a little bit of a to-do about the fact that Samuel, uh, Eli was in his own place and it's going to go on to say that Samuel was uh, ministering in the presence of the Lord. We have to remember at this time, though, the way that the tabernacle and ultimately later on the temple would have been constructed is there would have been uh, um, rooms for the priest to be able to live in so that they could serve and minister into the, uh, to the temple throughout the night. 
And so at this point, Eli had just retired to his own room, and Eli kept some sort of quarters that was closer to the place where the, the Holies of Holies was, or I should say the place where the ark was kept, right? And so it says, uh, he was lying down in his own place, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So a couple of things in the background, the lamp of the Lord would be lit from sundown to sun up, okay? And so part of the duties of the priest was to make sure that the lamp of the Lord did not go out at night. Now, Samuel was no longer able to do these duties, so that should have fallen to his sons, but they weren't. So Samuel himself was actually the one apparently making sure that the lamp of the Lord was not going out. Now, this is both a literal job that he was doing, but it was also symbolic, I believe, of what was going on in the later darkness of Israel. Israel is in a place of great darkness. So this was, this, if the lamp of the Lord was lit, and that means it was probably in the wee hours of the morning before the sun had risen. You know, something like, we don't know for sure, like two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning or something like that. The lamp of the Lord had not gone, yet, gone out. And so there's a symbolism that is there, <clears throat> not just for what's going on uh, in the t- priestly house, but for what's going on with Israel. There's a great darkness that has taken place in Israel, but hope, God's presence had not gone out, and ultimately he will provide a way for his light, for his word to be known through Samuel. And the other thing that we want to see with this is, first off, Samuel, before he was a prophet, was faithful in the small things ministering to the Lord. The other thing we see from a literary level is there's a contrast, whereas Samuel's, or excuse me, Eli's sons were laying with women at the entrance. Samuel was laying to minister to the Lord. You see a complete contrast there between the two, Samuel and Eli's sons. Now, what takes place next is really almost quite humorous. And so we find in verse 4, it says this, Then the Lord called Samuel. Now notice this. This isn't some sort of something that Eli, or excuse me, Samuel did. God took the initiative. God, in the midst of this darkness, took the initiative. And this goes all the way back to the very first of Samuel. So all the way, in the midst of this darkness, from a barren place, God brings the birth of a child, Samuel. In the midst of the place in which God, there was rarely uh, any visions. Why? Because the people were blind. God takes the initiative and speaks to Samuel. And so he called to Samuel and he said, here I am. Now that's one word in the Hebrew. Here I am, Hinnonite, Hinnonite. And, and he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I didn't call you, lie down again. And so he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose, and he went to Eli and said, here I am, for you have called me. But he said, I didn't call you, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose, and he went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. 
And then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so Samuel went and he lay down in his place. Now, one of the first things we need to understand and address right off the bat, this is not a text on how to hear the Lord audibly, okay? That is not the purpose of this. This is not something that is trying to say, hey, if you do this, or uh, you'll be able to hear the Lord, and this is, this, this, that's not what this text is about, okay? But what we do see here is in this, in somewhat of a humorous inter, interchange here, is Eli really should have been able to recognize sooner what was going on. He was the high priest. He should have had more discernment. He is ultimately able to discern, but it takes him a while to figure out what's going on. More evidence of his dullness of, of being able to see. And so he tells Samuel, and he tells him quite correctly what he should do. Eli is a complicated character, very interesting character. Verse 10, it says this, And then the Lord came and stood... So here in the fourth time he's there, he's, he's, he's in a very strong presence within Samuel, calling as the other times. And he says, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And on that day, I will fulfill against all that I have spoken concerning his, uh, against Eli, all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. Now, what is that implied in there? Is acknowledging the fact that Eli has already received this first prophecy. Is acknowledging that Eli has already received it and has done nothing with it. He's still dull of seeing. And on that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew. In other words, he's saying it has been revealed, his blindness has been confronted because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Now that word there, Blaspheming God, that word blaspheming in the Hebrew is literally to make something light. So in other words, keep in mind, what did we see last week? He confronted Eli, the unnamed prophet confronted Eli because he said, you're not making me heavy. You're not making me heavy in your worship. And said, you're making yourself heavy. As we saw that Eli is actually quite fat. And he had made himself heavy from the, the ill-gotten gains of his sons. And so we see the contrast here. He says, not only have you not made me heavy, you've made me light. And that's ultimately what blasphemy is. May the Lord light. And he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now, that's serious. 
Imagine this is your first prophetic word that you receive. You're thinking, hey, God's wanting to speak to me. All right. This should be cool. This should be interesting. And here's what God says. Your boss, I'm going to do some bad things to him. Although I shouldn't, that's, that's actually not a good way to say it. He's actually going to do good things. Because God's salvation is going to come through this judgment. But Eli and his sons aren't going to like it. And we might say, why is, not, is, is this God doing this? I mean, isn't God a God of mercy? But keep in mind how this worked in the Old Testament. Keep in mind in times past when God has, has foretold that he was going to do something. For example, when uh, the people of Israel were worshiping the, the, the uh, golden calf, and he tells Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. What does Moses do? He intercedes. That's what a priest and a prophet does. He intercedes on their behalf. He calls out for mercy. Remember what happened in the book of Jonah. Jonah goes into the Nineveh and says, in three days, God's going to wipe you guys out. What do the people of Nineveh do? They repent. They call out and they look and they appeal to God's mercy. What did we see Eli do? What did his sons do? Nothing. So time has passed. Eli knew already God's foretelling of judgment. He should have known about what Moses did in interceding for the people. But he did nothing. And instead, he allowed God to continue to be made light and made himself heavy off of ill worship. Now, we can look and we can say, oh, that's pretty, that's pretty harsh for this family, but it's really, once again, they are a microchasm for what God is doing to the overall people of Israel. Because as we're going to see in chapter 4, it's not just the family of Eli that receives judgment, but really the, the nation of Israel as a whole. They're about to be attacked and about to lose to the Philistines. And so if we were to go further on into the prophets, specifically the prophet Jeremiah chapter 7, we're reminded that God is, reminding, was, is, is warning the people of Israel as they're about to be conquered by Babylon to learn from this that has taken place to Eli. And so it says in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 8, he says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and that's referring to the temple in Jerusalem, and say, we are delivered. Only go on doing all these abominations. He's saying, you're going out, and you're doing all these things, but you're coming to the temple and offering worship and saying, oh, look, isn't this great? Peace, peace. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now go to my place that was in Shiloh. Oh, ding, 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 ding. He's saying go back to here, to chapter 3, to chapter 4, where we're looking at this week and next week where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, 
And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave you to, and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all of your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. You see, it's not just Eli that is being judged. The entire people is being judged because of their blindness. Just as they would many, many years later in Babylon. This sounds harsh, but in truth, God is using it for ultimately their salvation. He is confronting them in their sin. He loves them too much to continue on in their blindness because he sees the deceptiveness of it. You want to know one of the reasons why I ended up to finally go get my contacts that I talked about? My wife. We were driving around Dallas and we were, and we're moving into Dallas and, and Joseph, I'm sure, can relate to this. Dallas has weird streets. They don't make sense. Oklahoma has this beautiful grid system that makes so much more sense. And the streets are, the streets are actually straight. Not these weird things where like you got Beltline that you go in any direction and that you end up at Beltline somewhere. And so we were driving around and in my poor eyesight, I almost got in a wreck multiple times. No, it is funny now. <laughs> Mariana wasn't laughing then. And she was pregnant. And, and, and I had almost blew through a stop sign because I couldn't see it. And she finally looked at me and said, you're going to get us killed. In your blindness that you're refusing to acknowledge, we're having a kid. This is dangerous. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt us. I had to confront my pride. I had to confront things that were uncomfortable for me. I had to stop just saying, yeah, my eyesight's not good. Isn't that great? <laughs> and I had to get my eyes checked. God, in his grace and his mercy, confronts us in our sin. Why? Because he loves us. He doesn't allow us to just to be flippant about our sin. Because sin not only destroys and breaks us up individually, sin always has an effect on the entire community. The sins and the, uh, the vileness of the evilness within the spiritual leadership had ongoing effects that spread its tentacles out into the, the larger people. That's what sin does. Sin never just affects people in isolation. So God confronts our blindness because in our blindness, we're going to hurt ourselves and others. He takes that serious. Why don't we? So Samuel, as I pointed out, was a boy. We don't know his age. He was a boy. And here is, he's been ministering faithfully, and here he gets to hear the word of the Lord. This is what I'm going to do to your boss. 
the high priest who is not only his boss, possibly one of the most powerful men in the country at this time. One of the most powerful families, for sure. Yet Samuel's called to be faithful, even when it's not convenient. Verse 15, Samuel lay into the morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Yeah, I can imagine. I would be too. Notice he's not just some arrogant bully. In many ways, he's not like Joseph, who had received this vision and was anxious to go tell his brothers and his parents about it. He had a tender heart. Unfortunately, Eli knew about the whole thing. And so verse 16, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that, that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. You got to wonder, was Eli expecting this? Why did he think that Samuel might hide something from him? So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. Now this is one place where the NIV actually does a little bit better translation. It says, because the Hebrew is literally, let the Lord do what is good in his own eyes. Again, play off his eyesight. And this is in some ways good. Eli is recognizing you can't trust my eyesight You can trust the Lord's eyesight. Unfortunately, that's as far as it seems to go. Verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, um, proved that he was a reliable prophet. And all that Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's basically saying from the north to the south, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And that's one of the key themes of this text. What we've seen, if we began in, in, in verse 1, it, uh, Samuel was a boy. And so we see his transformation into a prophet. And there's a word play there, from the Hebrew word for boy to the Hebrew word to prophet. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And so what we see here is God in judging Eli, and in bring, he is bringing up from this place of spiritual barrenness and death, just as he did from Hannah's womb, he's bringing up for one who is a prophet. So whereas in the place where the, the word of the Lord was rare, God himself provided the vehicle and the way for the people to be able to once again hear the word of the Lord on a regular basis. And as we come back to this, one of the things, what we really want I want us to see from this is the danger of bad eyesight. What happens when our vision becomes so dangerous? As I said, Eli was symptomatic of what was going on throughout the whole nation of Israel. Their vision was, as a whole was dulled. As a whole, it was dulled. But the truth is, this isn't just what they have to deal with, 
but rather it is what we often see taking place in our day and age over and over again. We see it in our culture, right? We live in a world where people are becoming more and more blind to the spiritual realities. And so, and in their blindness, we're calling all kinds of things that are evil good. And we scratch our heads and we're saying, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make any sense. Why would we, why would we think this is good for a teenager to be able to transition from a male to a female? Something irreversible and say this is something that should be celebrated. And as, as a culture, we make God lighter and lighter and our own understanding heavier and heavier and our own wants and desires heavier and heavier, heavier we're going to find that we become more and more blind as a culture and as a nation. But the truth is, as we, we can look and see all kinds of different ways that our culture is losing its eyesight. But I love the fact that it doesn't just talk about the nation of Israel, it addresses a specific family. And not just a specific regular family, those who are supposed to know better, those in Israel's spiritual leadership. And what it does is it forces us to remind ourselves that we need to get into the eye doctor and we ourselves need to take that eye test. Are we ourselves looking and addressing the state of our eyesight? And it's easy for us, friends, to get so distracted by the blindness of our culture. And we can look out and say, oh, look at what's going on in Hollywood. Look at what's going on in Washington, D.C. Look at what's going on in Europe and ourselves be driving completely blind. I once knew a man who was, who was, uh, uh, he was older, shall we say, and he was losing his eyesight. And what finally caused him to stop driving is he got in a wreck. And in the wreck, he, he T-boned a person. And there was a cop sitting, uh, sitting and having a meal at a restaurant right next to it, saw the whole thing. And when the cop came in to make sure everybody was okay and everybody was okay, the, the older gentleman said, you know, this is quite a mess, but I'm sure glad that this wasn't my fault. And the cop looked at him and said, sir, I was right over there. I saw the whole thing. You ran the red light. He thought he could see. He thought it was the other people's problem. And he had to be confronted with the fact that he himself was blind. We can rage against everybody else's poor eyesight, but the fact is, are we ourselves, through the power of the Holy Spirit, examining our own hearts, our own spiritual dullness? The truth is, and this is a reality that we all need to come and grasp hold of, each and every one of us is born blind. None of us come into this world knowing God. Each and every one of us come into this world alienated from God, born blind. And in fact, you may be here and, and, and you may look at all that we're doing and, and think this is just silly. There's a blindness that's there. In our heart of hearts, we reject God. That's what we do. But the first place of being able to see is confronting the fact that we're blind. So if any of us come in here arrogant and puffed up thinking, oh, of course I see, that right there is one of the first signs that we're failing our vision test. 
What we find as well is there is a slow descent into blindness. Just as with me when that first story that I told, I didn't even realize I was blind. That, that, that was a slow progression. I was shocked when I was able to see when I got my contacts. I was shocked how blind I was because I didn't realize it. It was such a slow, slow progression. It was the same way with my own spiritual heart. There was never one moment where I just said, I'm going to reject the things of God. It was just a slowly, the things of this world became a little bit heavier and the things of God became a little bit lighter. And in this progression, it's easy because what happens, in that, and that's the first way these, these, this blindness comes upon us, we begin making God light and everything else heavy. And a lot of times it begins by taking the good things that are gifts of God, things that we should enjoy, things that we should uh, cherish even, but we make them heavier than God. Things like our career, things like our finances, things like our family, things like traveling, personal self-care. All of these are good things, but they become the ultimate and God becomes a little bit lighter and a little bit lighter and a little bit lighter. And next thing we know, we're blind. We can also, this progression can take place because we begin to listen to what the world is screaming at us. is heavy. Things in the news. Things in politics. The world is constantly screaming it at us. Saying, oh, wait a minute, these things are so heavy, you've got to give it your full attention. And God becomes a little bit lighter and a little bit lighter and a little bit lighter. And as our eyesight becomes dull, this is what takes place. His word, a little less beautiful. His glory, a little less bright. Our sin, it's a little less ugly, a little bit more tolerable. And our obedience is a little less defined, a little bit more wishy-washy, a little bit more up to you. And the truth is, in the midst of that, God does bring judgment. He disciplines those he loves. But here's the good news, friends. We serve a God who restores the sight of the blind. Just as God's plan of salvation was to confront the evilness by bringing life from a barren wound, life into a place of death, his light of his word into a place where there was darkness. Into this dark world, he brought his ultimate light in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who would ultimately confront our spiritual blindness. The fullest revelation of the glory of God. When he was gentle and lowly in heart. And what is one of the signs as the apostle, or excuse me, John the Baptist asked, are you the one? The blind see, the lame walk, and to the poor the gospel is preached. And even in the gospels, we often see he heals the blind. 
The gospels often tell those stories when they tell them of the healing of the blind, not just to highlight that he's able to heal the blind, though that's certainly part of it, but those healings of the blind often are emblematic of the nature of the hearts of the people. So notice there are always around times when people are struggling to believe who he is. They're struggling with their own spiritual blindness. But the good news is, friends, that we are all people who are born blind. Jesus Christ has the power to give us sight through his grace and through his mercy. But here's the problem. Who were those who refused sight? It wasn't those who had cried out and said, God, heal my sight. Those who looked at him in faith, who could embrace and acknowledge their own neediness. It was the Pharisees. And in one particular parable, they, they, they point blank asked him, so are you saying we're blind? And what was Jesus' response? Because you said you see, and you do not, you're going to remain in your blindness. One of the greatest dangers in our spiritual blindness is to go around par- par- parading ourselves, convinced that we're able to see that place of haughtiness, of trusting in ourselves. That is one of the sure signs that we have failed our eye test. But what does it mean for us then to call out to this God who heals the blind? What does it mean for us to raise our hand to the God of hope and say, God, restore my sight? Well, the first thing is, as I've already alluded to, is we look first and foremost at our neediness. We acknowledge it. We're blind. We need a Savior who can restore our sight. Secondly, as we acknowledge our neediness, we accept a posture of neediness. This isn't just an initial posture of neediness as we, as we respond to God in that first moment of salvation, but rather an entire life of neediness, acknowledging that we are ever always dependent upon him and his grace and his, his mercy. If we ever get to the point where we, we can look and say, you know what, I no longer need God's help. I no longer need him to, to work his grace in me in my life. Boy, we're in a dangerous place right there. Thirdly, we cultivate a life of repentance. For the believer, that's a joy. That's a joy for us to constantly be looking because we can look and acknowledge our sin, but yet joyfully acknowledge how much greater God's grace is. So to paraphrase Tim Keller, we come to this understanding that we'll never be able to fully comprehend how sinful our hearts are but we can realize that we are more loved than, we're, than we'll ever dare to be dreamed. We'll never understand the depth of the sinfulness of our heart, but we can trust that we are more loved than we can dare to dream. And then finally, we respond to his grace with obedience. In other words, we live in a world where we respond to outrages with virtue signaling. We respond to it with big, bold declarations. Oh, this is horrible! And we think because we posted this or we tweeted this, or maybe we come into the church and, and, and said, oh yeah, that's bad, I do this. 
oh man, my wife really elbowed me on that one. Boy, he, the, the preacher sure stepped on my feet. And then we go home without taking it serious, without taking our own needs serious. In essence, that's just virtue signaling, folks. That's cheap grace. Grace is looking at our sin and acknowledging that God sees it and he deals with it, but he deals with it in his resurrection power. Now, this isn't through us effort. This isn't through us trying to try harder. Again, God is the one who initiates all of this. We are seeking to respond to what he is already doing in our lives. The question is, friends, are you able to acknowledge? Are you able to, do you have the courage, or I should say, is God calling you this moment to step before this vision test with honesty and ultimately with hope? Not to break yourself down, not to make yourself overwhelmed with shame, but to turn your eyes to the God who restores sight to the blind. To actually fill you today with hope and wonder. And when that takes place, just as, you, as God restores your sight, just as I noticed and I was overwhelmed with all that I was missing, we begin to see the goodness and the glory and the wonder of God. And it takes our breath away. And we'll say we never want to go back. Why don't you do that today? I invite the worship team to go ahead and come up. You can do this right now in your seats in these moments. Ask God to reveal your blindness to you. Not to make you wallow in shame, but to rather drive you to him and his grace and his mercy. Will you do that today? Father, we thank you for your hope, for your love your goodness. We acknowledge our sinfulness. We acknowledge our blindness. But even more than that, we acknowledge your goodness, your power to save. Death does not have the last word. Our blindness does not have the last word. Your grace and your resurrection power does. So Father, give us the faith to see how you are confronting our sin and give us the faith to respond to your love and to your grace that meets us in that place of need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.